Okay, Hebrews 1. 1. That I was addressing you. Okay, Hebrews. Hebrews, never mind. You would have gotten that if he... Yeah, you got it, Brian. Brian, Brian Reed got it. You were being attentive. That's right. This is the season of no touch love. <laughs> Greet one another with a kind look, a holy, sweet salute. I only repeat that because there are among the brethren people with extremely low immunity at this time of year. And so, wait till spring to hug one another. Okay, I just like to make this announcement. Ladies' prayer. This Sunday, February 23rd, it's the last Sunday of the month already. Wow. After church, right after church, Sunday, February 23rd, and there's the prayer request box on the information table. Thanks, Joanna. I keep saying tape table. I'm revealing my... Age, okay. You said it, Claudia. I was trying to think of a more polite thing. but Hebrews, this is our fifth increment already in Hebrews. Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus. And I'm praying for 2020 vision for the eyes of your heart. So let's take a couple of moments. Preparation. Father, I thank you for this phalanx of advancing believers, fulfilling the vision of Philippians 127. Citizens, soldiers of heaven, moving forward with unity and being an intimidation to the adversaries, not vice versa. We thank you for the privilege that we have to study the remarkable document before us, this epistle called the Epistle to the Hebrews. And may you continue to enlighten us so that we may truly see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. For in seeing him, we see our destiny. We see the destiny of humanity. And we thank you, Father, So open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of this segment of your word. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Nothing wakes up a person and gets their attention like a pie in the face. I've said this before. Because the writer of Hebrews grabs our attention by hitting us with seven pies in the face. The letter pie in the Greek. And this is a rhetorical device, a literary device called alliteration. And he uses it in the opening salvo of this epistle. It literally and literarily pops with seven pies. 
It opens up like this. It's polymeros, meaning many parts, in many parts. Kai polutropos, many ways. And then palai, of old, long ago. Hotheos, God. Lalesas, tois, patrasen. Patrasen is fathers. Spoke to the fathers. Entois, prophetes, in the prophets. And the next line begins with ep, eskatu, ton hemeron, tuton, which means upon or in these last days. And he goes on to explain, he has spoken to us in a son. So seven pies in the face, it wakes you up, rhetorically speaking. And it shows in the first half of the sentence being highly alliterative. It's funny, I remember even, I think it was grade school, hearing about our teacher saying alliteration is many words, mostly with vowels that are repeated for a poetic effect. And then she said, assonance is also a repetition mostly of vowels. Alliteration, rather, is consonants. And assonance, A-S-S-O-N-A-N-C-E, is a creative repetition, mostly of vowel sounds. And it's, I found and discovered in looking intently at this that the next phrase, or the next segment of the opening, has a assonance. It has several eta sounds, the vowel sound eta or epsilon, rather, and also the eta sound, which is another E if we were going to transliterate it. So the first sentence of the sentence is highly alliterative and uses alliteration as an attention grabber. It contains five words that begin with the letter P or pi. Polymeros, polytropos, palai, patrasen, and prophetas or prophetes. But the P sound hits us seven times, not just five, seven times. For it's also found in the third syllable of this word polytropos, which means many ways, and in the preposition ep. It's usually epi, but when you have a vowel that begins the next word, as we do here with escato, E-S-C-H-A-T-O-U, then you take out the I and it becomes a contraction. So you have ep. So you have both the vowel of the assonance and the consonant of the alliteration represented in the second part, ep, escatu. So we have then several words that begin with the word or the letter Epsilon, escatu, or ep, which means upon, escatu, which means last. And then we have hameron, which actually begins with the eta, but still contains, and that means days, hameron. And then we have tuton, and then elalesen, which means spoke or speaks or has spoken to us. Then we have en 
huio, actually, in a sun. No article. It's an anarthrous noun. Now, I'm doing this on purpose just to show you that I'm doing a minute study as well as a study of the bigger parts of Hebrews. But the point that, that we have before us now is he continues his argument here. He opens with a remarkable diligence, a mark, remarkable attentiveness, the smooth flow of the blending of the upsilon for huyu also has the sound that is a fluency that's remarkable and poetic. So we see six words beginning with the letter epsilon, ep, eskatu, elalesen, en, theken, epoiesen, and that adds to the fluid fluency with the use of the word eta. You're going to see all this in print. It'll make a little more sense. And also translated as E. So with the preposition epi, which begins verse 2, the alliteration and the assonance blend in a single two-letter word. Epi becomes ep, since it precedes a word that begins with a vowel, which is eschatu, where we get the word eschatology. So the writer has exercised surprising literary and rhetorical skill and care in crafting the opening sentence of the exordium, as it's called, or the introduction. The alliterative pie segment, as I call it, contrasts with the fragment that accentuates the assonant epsilon words, just as the provisional speaking of God long ago in the prophets is contrasted with the definitive speech of God in a son, God, who spoke the uncreated word in the first of two divine processions, spoke that word into creation in incarnation. So again, the alliterative pi segment contrasts with the fragment that accentuates the epsilon words. And what is contrasted here is a provisional speaking in the prophets. By provisional, it means only for the time being versus definitive speaking in the son, which indicates a finality and a decisiveness and a completeness. And so there's a remarkable opening here in these opening words. God having spoken provisionally, and I'm going to give you these couple of vocabulary words tonight. This is all needed to get to the bigger part and the more elaborate part of the doctrine here. Provisionally is the sense of the first part of Hebrews 1.1. God who spoke provisionally in many ways and by in many parts, fragmentary, many ways, he spoke provisionally in the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us, and then we have definitively. Definitively is the best word I can think of that conveys the sense here, because that means with finality, with decisiveness, with completeness, not in parts, not in fragments, not in many ways, but in one way. He spoke in the way 
the truth, the life, in his son, in a son. Anarthrous noun means it's minus an article. And that is even more dramatic than if it had an article with it. So there's a very dramatic opening in that which they call exordium. It's not just an introduction. It's an exordium because an argument is being made here within this sermon in an epistle. And an innovation and an elaboration on Psalm 110 is being made by this author. And it's intended for us. It's intended for us as much as it was for the first century audience. So the first two pi words... Palu meros kai palu tropos mean in many ways and many parts, or literally in many parts and by various ways, tropes. God having spoken provisionally in the prophets is contrasted with God speaking definitively in a son. Now, provisionally, again, means serving only for the time being. Definitively means conclusively and completely. Many parts and many ways contrast with a singular son. This contrast of many, which is the prefix palu, Many, P-O-L-U. This prefix, palu. And the contrast of it with the anarthris, which means not preceded by an article, huio, son, is a contrast of the provisional, only for the time being, with the definitive finality and I call it once and for allness of God speaking in a son. That contrast, now this is why it's important, that contrast between the many ways and many parts with the singular son is a contrast that goes throughout the entire epistle. As the sermon in a letter unfurls, that contrast travels throughout. As the thesis of the treatise unfurls, we are presented with the hard contrast of many and various sacrifices offered in many and various ways, annually or daily or often or many times. And that is contrasted with a once, or once and for all, and for the ages, sacrifice of a son, of the son. I happened by accident, not really, by providence, to come upon this book by Kevin McCruden, M-C-C-R-U-D-E-N. And I said, well, I'll buy it with my Amazon card, gift cards. And it's a little thin book. It's about 139 pages and then a lot of notes. And it was $106. And I was like, came on the porch and I'm going, wait a minute, that's got to be 
something like a handkerchief or something. I didn't order this. And it was, uh, and then I realized that the density of this book is greater than any book I've ever read on Hebrews. It's one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen in my life. And it's each page is dense. His name is McCruden. And in his densely packed study, he has presented a case of philanthropia or philanthropy as the major concept of Hebrews. And he wrote it in 2008. I thought you might like that, Joe. Philanthropia. He uses it over and over again. And he says, just as God speaks more definitively in the Son, so too the salvation brought by the Son is more definitive than past salvific dispensations. Now, he uses the word dispensations. They're not in the classic sense that we're used to, but in times past. He's using it in the sense of times past, long ago, like the Hebrew writer does. A little later, he wrote a little more definitively. See what I did there? And he wrote this little section here. He says, the contrast between provisional and complete is a recurring theme in Hebrews, especially in terms of Hebrews' high priestly Christology. Central to this contrast is the claim that Christ as high priest offers in his sacrifice not another victim, but his own person. A personal offering which the Levitical priests, and I will give some attention to that word, Levitical. Sometimes you say a word over and over again and people don't know what you're talking about. Levitical, he says, a personal offering which the Levitical priests did not do. It is the personal sacrifice which accounts for both the more perfect priesthood of Christ and the specific failure of the institution of the Levitical priesthood. In other words, in Christ, the perfect high priest, a definitive, complete sacrifice has been made. More specifically, he says, what has been displayed definitively is the personal quality of Christ's salvific activity, a personal quality that the Levitical priesthood lacked. At this point, McCruden appropriately gives his own translation of Hebrews 9, 24 to 26. We've already gone there. So I'll offer you my own translation, and you might want to turn there because you see how the sense of the definitive versus the complete, the many versus the one son, and all these contrasts that came right in the, in the initial exordium are developed way deep in the epistle in Hebrews nine twenty four to 26. This is one of the most remarkable sections there is in all the Bible. This is my translation. And again, my translation of these things are going to change from each time because each time I'll put more effort into the meaning, the exact meaning, and we'll try for more and more clarity. Because if anything, Hebrews is the text strives for clarity. Hebrews 9.24, For not into holy places made by human hands did Christ enter mere symbolic representations of the real, but into heaven itself, 
now to appear before the face of God in behalf of us. Nor did he have to offer himself often. That's a a word that is doubled up on. P-O, I'll do the English transliteration for ease here. Palakas, often. Nor did he have to offer himself often. As the high priest does when he enters into the holy places annually. Notice that, high priest annually. Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Since the creation of the universe, or annually, rather, with the blood of another. Let's do that again. Nor did he have to offer himself often. There it is, the many times, as the high priest does when he enters into the holy places annually with the blood of another. In that case, verse 26, Jesus, I put in brackets because he's the subject, he would have had to suffer many times. Palakis, often and many times, both Palakis, since the creation of the universe. But now, once, now, once, not many times, not often, now, once, the word hapax is used here, and the stronger word ephapax is used also. In three times in Hebrews, it's a catchword in Hebrews, and we'll see. Well, we'll see some of the uses of that. In that case, Jesus would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the universe. But now, once at the junction of the ages, and I've worked hard on this to get this translation. It usually says consummation or end, but it actually means suntelea means the end of one eon and the beginning of another. So it reveals the cross as the hinge. It closes one age and opens up another. It's a break-in. It's a, it's a tremendous breaking in of a new aeon. So in that case, he would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the universe. Notice the word suffer, where he suffered in his sacrifice. But now once, at the junction of the ages, the end of one, the beginning of another, he was revealed For the removal of sin, the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Notice the contrast of many times or often, Palakas in verse 25 and in verse 26, with a word in the Greek, hapax. Hard breathing makes it sound like our H sound, A, P, A. X, hapax. You put an E, P, H, A, P, A, X. And you have even a stronger by this couple of letters here, E, P, H. You have a stronger word meaning once for all. Once not to be repeated for all. We could say for all of humanity, for all time. F-hapax. Those are two key catchwords in Hebrews. It doesn't mean they're used often, but when they're used, they're used in strategic places. They're deployed in strategic places in Hebrews. So notice the contrast in this little section of many times or often. 
with once, verse 26. A catchword in Hebrews, along with this stronger F hapax, accent here, F hap, F hapax, rather, which the writer deploys with great effect in Hebrews. And you can look these up for yourself. You'll see how strategically placed this word once and for all is. Hebrews 7.27, Hebrews 9.12, and Hebrews 10.10. So F. Hapax has the definitive force, notice I said definitive, of the emphatic English phrase, and we say it, we emphasize, once and for all. Or the French, une fois pour toutes. Une fois, one time, pour toutes. All. Ephapax is only found two other times in the New Testament. That word Ephapax is found outside of Hebrews only twice in all the New Testament. And it helps us to look, I always like to look at where it was used. 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Paul's giving the history of the appearances of the resurrected Christ and who saw him. In 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Paul brought Epapax into play when speaking of the appearance of Jesus after his resurrection from the dead, recounting that he was seen by 500 brothers and sisters, believers, at one time, Epapax, at one time, on one occasion. 500 people saw the resurrected Christ at one time. So if you're looking for two or three witnesses, 500 is pretty good. God said, the father said, well, he's appeared to 12. He's appeared to Mary in the garden. He's appeared to Peter. He's appeared to James. Let's have him appear. Appear to 500. And he did. He probably spoke for some time. I'd had a meal with him. Who knows? That's a rally. Now, in Romans 6.10, F. Hapax has a similar use to that of Hebrews. In fact, Paul says in Romans 6.10, dying, Christ died to sin once for all. F. Hapax. Living, he lives to God. Romans 8.34 follows up on this and says, Yea, rather who is risen, or much more he is risen. And advocates for us at the right hand of the Father. And that kind of thought travels into Hebrews and opens up a whole idea of the priesthood of Christ. So in Hebrews 9, 25 to 26, not only does the stark contrast exist between many times and often with once, but the word now appears with once. Now, once And that corresponds all the way back to Hebrews 1, in these last days, now, in these last days. And in a son, in the opening exordium, Hebrews 1, 2. So significantly, the theme of Christ's suffering, Hebrews 2, 10, becomes a very important verse in how God thought it fitting to bring his son to perfection by suffering. What is that perfection? 
To answer that question is to answer the meaning of Hebrews. What is the perfection? What is the meaning of the perfection that Jesus had to be made? He had to be made perfect, and God thought it fitting that he be made perfect through suffering. Now, you're probably already thinking he, he did not need to be morally perfected or ethically perfected or perfected in his divine nature or his human nature. So what does it mean? And there are many reasons why this becomes a key verse, Hebrews 2.10. So suffering, crucial here also in Luke 24, 26 to 27. Some people think Luke wrote Hebrews, but Luke 24 to 26, Jesus remonstrating the slow-witted disciples said, ought not Christ to have suffered? Haven't you read the prophets? God thought it fitting and appropriate that the son suffer. This theme of suffering is also crucial to Hebrews, especially in 2.10 and 9.26. So on top of that, in Hebrews 9.24, there's a contrast, and this tempts many scholars, and I'm reading quite a few of them now. It tempts many scholars to assume a Platonic influence, the influence of Plato in Hebrews. Because Plato had the idea of the ideal up here existence and the down here sentient or sensible material existence. And Platonic theory gave way to Gnosticism and et cetera, et cetera. So there's a big argument about whether the writer was a Platonist or someone who was affected by, or you could say infected by, Plato. And he was definitely influenced by a man named Philo, P-H-I-L-O, who we'll refer to quite often, but not so much Plato. So there is also, therefore, in Luke 9.24, there's a contrast, and this tempts many scholars to assume a Platonic influence in Hebrews because of the contrast between the holy places made with human hands into which the Levitical high priest enters annually, and heaven itself, where Jesus entered now. When I first heard about Plato, the teacher said, there are many chairs in this room, and they are material creations. They're, they're commonplace chairs. But up in the purity of the spiritual heavenly atmosphere, there is chair the ideal concept of chair. It's like George Carlin when he was on acid. He would say, chair. Whoa, man, chair. And then he'd say, God, wow, well, God. He's like, he can take a car and throw it over a hedge. Wow, you know, that's, they think they're coming up with big discoveries. As someone says, when you're on drugs, you, what you really are comes out. And then someone says, well, what if you really, what you really are is a, when they use the word, a compound word, never mind. It's, it's, it has to do with assonance, if you, never mind. But 
I don't think, now I'll say right off the bat, I don't think this writer is a Platonist. I don't think any of the New Testament writers are Platonists. Some of the patristic theologians like Origen were. And you have to watch out for Platonism because it, if it ends up with a kind of a dualism where flesh, like human material flesh, is considered evil. So salvation is an escape from this flesh. And... It's pretty shocking that Jesus became flesh. That's not too platonic. But they, it, it looks like because of the heavenly and the earthly and the not of this creation and this creation and the tabernacle and the heavens itself, the district beyond the veil, that he's talking in a plate. And there is a kind of dualism there, but it's not Platonism. I think we should get away from that right off the bat. So... Jesus entered, and it says now, which is used again in 926, to appear before the face of God in behalf of us. If you want to see Jesus, he's face to face with his Father, and he's speaking about you. He's advocating for you. He's speaking about you in glowing terms. Hey, Father, you're going to see it in Hebrews too. Here I am, me and the children you gave to me. Here we are. We're all, see, with him there with the Father, you're there in him before the face of the Father. He's pretty proud of you. Not because of anything you did, anything I did. So he appears before the face of God in behalf of us. The personal nature of the sacrifice of Jesus is accentuated strongly in Hebrews 9.26 by the final phrase which says, by the sacrifice of himself. The self-revelation of God in Christ is a self-dedication of God to mankind. And where evangelists often emphasize the dedication of people to God, the gospel emphasizes the dedication of God to people, the gift of God to people, gift of himself. Now that this sacrifice is what we call salvific or saving in its effect is evident as we're going to see as Hebrews unfolds, and I'm looking very much forward to it, that this sacrifice is offered as the ultimate expression of divine philanthropy is also evident and will be more and more so. And that it depicts a beneficent Christology. And whether this sacrifice is specifically depicted in Hebrews as universally salvific is a question for intelligence that I'm asking now at the outset of Hebrews 2020 instead of just assuming it the author to say that. So in our study, Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus. It is important to clarify and define terms since Hebrews very text is designed for clarity. The whole thing is that you can see it once you look at it. It's designed for clarity. So that word we looked at before Levitical, it's used three times in the paragraph just cited from McCruden. It has to do with a system of sacrifices and offerings instituted under Moses in the Torah. 
That's where we get that word Levitical. And you need to know that vocabulary word to understand Hebrews. It has to do with a system of sacrifices and offerings instituted under Moses in the Torah. So Levitical derives from Levi. L-E-V-I, Levi. And Levi was Jacob's third son by Jacob's first wife, Leah. He is the ancestor of Aaron and of Moses. Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, A-A-R-O-N, was the first high priest of Israel and therefore the model of the order of priests called Levitical. The order of priests that began with him is called the Levitical order. For the priesthood was practiced exclusively by the tribe of Levi. You couldn't be a priest unless you were of the tribe of Levi. And that's why there's a big deal made about Jesus being a priest, and yet he's from the tribe of Judah. So he must be a priest of a different order. And thankfully he is because he's of a royal tribe, not a priestly tribe. So if he's a priest and a king, he's really something. So the order of priests called the Levitical order means that the priesthood and the rituals and sacrifices and offerings and teaching was practiced exclusively by the tribe of Levi to which Aaron and his sons and descendants belonged. So sometimes it's called the Aaronic order, A-A-R-O-N-I-C, Aaronic, sometimes Levitical. And I want you to understand that because that's going to come up a lot in our study. The order of priests that began with him is called the Levitical order or sometimes the Aaronic order. Sometimes it's Levitical, sometimes it's Aaronic. Levitical is also related to the third book of the Bible called Leviticus, in which there is a detailed description of the qualifications of the priests and the directions for the sacrifices and offerings of the Levitical priesthood. Now listen carefully. It is this provisional priesthood only for the time being of that time. Provisional priesthood that is radically contrasted with the priesthood of Jesus, which is said to be of the order of, or after the order of, Melchizedek. There's another key character, another key phrase in not often. You, the, Melchizedek's mentioned twice in the scriptures. Once in Genesis 14, 18 to 20, when he meets Abraham in the Valley of Elah, the Valley of the Kings, after Abraham defeats a terrorist army with 318 trained Israeli commandos by a night raid, he meets Melchizedek. And then again, it's mentioned in Psalm 110.4. All the writers of the New Testament mention and elaborate Psalm 110.1. Sit at my right hand, son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. But only one person paid attention to verse 4. Because to the same person, 
God said, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he left that up in the air for someone to develop. And guess who developed it? Someone took the ball, the writer to the Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews. So Jesus is said to be the order not of Levi, but of Melchizedek. He's a figure who's mentioned only twice in the Old Testament, but becomes extraordinarily significant in Hebrews. So we should be aware then of the sharp distinction between the Levitical and the Melchizedekan, we can say. You can just take the word Melchizedek and add an A-N, and you have an adjective, a Melchizedekan priesthood. So I say sharp distinction here. Because the word that distinguishes them is sharper than any two-edged sword. And its effect is to create differentiations of consciousness in you and in me, leading to precise thinking in us. So let's return to the opening sentence of the exordium. More precisely to the first part of the opening sentence of this letter. I'm not always going to be this specific, this scientific, this exegetical, but I think it's important if we're going to really treat Hebrews seriously, and we better. We're now prepared to give the sense of Hebrews 1, 1 to 2a. In many and various ways, long ago, God who spoke provisionally to the fathers in the prophets in these last days has spoken definitively to us, to us, not to the fathers, to us in a son. So the prophets not only gather together such notables as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Hosea, but also less often reference men like Obadiah, Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. Nor do the prophets speak only of those spokesmen of God whose writings are traditionally listed under the title, the prophets. Of which sometimes these prophets are artificially classed as major and others minor prophets. That's a false, I think, a false and artificial distinction. David, who was a king, operated as a prophet as did others who composed or penned the Psalms, even though they are otherwise priests or kings. A lot of priests wrote Psalms. Kings wrote Psalms. David wrote Psalms. They were either priests or kings, but never priests and kings. Samuel, for whom two books are named in the Old Testament, is a prophet held in very high regard by God and by other prophets. He's mentioned by the Lord in one breath with Moses in Jeremiah 15.1. Moses is the quintessential prophet of the Old Testament. As, as such, then we could also say, given Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, God spoke by Moses long ago. Moses becomes a specific person with whom Jesus is compared in Hebrews 3. God was speaking by Moses, for example. Listen carefully to this now. God was speaking by Moses and in Moses or through Moses 
in many parts and in various ways through the specific instructions for the priests of the Levitical order and through the sacrifices and offerings which they were to present. And there were many ways and many methods in which they were presented. And many, whether it was a heifer, a red heifer, whose ashes were sprinkled with water, or whether it was the dove or two doves, or whether it was turtle doves or lambs or rams or young bullocks and different procedures were required for each one and exactly had to be followed because each one of these was depicting something about the one-time sacrifice. So God was speaking, for example, in Moses, a prophet, and to bring forth the sacrifices and offerings of the Levitical priesthood. These very regulations and picturesque descriptions of the offerings and sacrifices are among the significant ways that God spoke long ago provisionally in the prophets to our ancestors or the ancestors. So this provisional speech, though in continuity with the definitive speech of God in a son, it's God speaking in both cases, is also radically discontinuous because though God is the one speaking in both cases, in one case he spoke provisionally and the other he spoke definitively, completely, decisively, And with finality. So not only is this verifiably true. But there's also a contrast of long ago. Palai. Within these last days. With the emphasis on these. Two-tone. Two-tone. That used to be my nickname. Jared used to call me Two-Tone because I had gray and brown hair. <laughs> two, no, I'm not two, I said, you can't do that anymore. It's getting pretty much all gray, or white or whatever it is. I don't look in the mirror long enough like some of you do to find out. What, what color is it? I, I said to Adrian when he was a little baby, I said, what color is Papa's hair? And he goes, white! Went, really? <laughs> I better go look. Anyways. In one sense, in one place long ago, contrasted with in these last days. So we could say in, or we could even have the sense upon the breaking in of these last days. These last days broke in to history. These last days is ep escatu ton hemeron tutone. These, tutone, these last days, T-O-U-T omega N. So notice that it says in these last days, ep escatu ton hemron tuton. This is now in the epsilon section of the verse. These last days does not point to a time future. It is not pointing to a time future to the time of the writing of Hebrews even but to a present which has broken in to history with God speaking definitively in a son, in his son, 
in the Son who eternally proceeds from God his Father, who, as we learned in DLT, who from eternity generates him out of his own substance and consubstantial with himself. God spoke most definitively in a son, in Jesus Christ and him crucified. For the final and definitive eschatological event was the death of the son and his exaltation to the right hand of the father where he sits even now and where he patiently waits until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. May we see Jesus, and not through the foggy lenses of an unclear message. May we see Jesus with the 2020 vision of the eyes of our heart, fine-tuned by studying Hebrews. For that's what you designed this epistle for. You threw the ball and said, somebody take this and go beyond the son as a royal personage seated. Someone must take the declaration that I made of my son. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I thank you, Father, that whoever you commissioned for the writing of this epistle and preaching of this sermon in a letter took that ball and ran with it in such a splendid way under the direction of your Holy Spirit. And I thank you, Father, that not only are the scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit, but you speak through the Holy Spirit in these scriptures now. They are now a living word. They are now alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword giving us a precision in our thinking, an organization in our living, in our livingness, and a purpose and a destiny. For when we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, we see the destiny that you planned for many brothers and sisters, for many. And we're thankful for that. 